Good evening, my darlings, and welcome to Marley's Ghosts. Tonight's story is Lost in a Pyramid, or The Mummy's Curse, by Louisa May Alcott. And what are these, Paul? asked Evelyn, opening a tarnished gold box and examining its contents curiously. Seeds of some unknown Egyptian plant, replied Forsyth with a sudden shadow on his dark face as he looked down at the three scarlet grains lying in the white hand lifted to him. Where did you get them? asked the girl. That is a weird story which will only haunt you if I tell it, said Forsyth with an absent expression that strongly excited the girl's curiosity. Please tell me, I like weird tales, and they never trouble me. Oh, do tell, your stories are always so interesting, she cried, looking up with such a pretty blending of entreaty and command in her charming face that refusal was impossible. You'll be sorry for it, and so shall I, perhaps. I warned you beforehand that harm is foretold to the possessor of those mysterious seeds, said Forsyth, smiling even while he knit his black brows and regarded the blooming creature before him with a fond yet foreboding glance. Tell on, I am not afraid of these pretty atoms, she answered with an impertinent nod. To hear is to obey. Let me read the facts and then I will begin, returned Forsyth. "'pacing to and fro with a far-off look "'of one who turns the pages of past. "'Evelyn watched him a moment, "'and then returned to her work, or play, rather, "'for the task seemed well-suited to the vivacious little creature, "'half-child, half-woman. "'While in Egypt,' commenced Forsyth slowly, "'I went one day with my guide and Professor Niles "'to explore the Cheops.' Niles had a mania for antiquities of all sorts and forgot time, danger, and fatigue in the ardor of his pursuit. We rummaged up and down the narrow passages, half-choked with dust and close air, reading inscriptions on the walls, stumbling over shattered mummy cases, or coming face to face with some shriveled specimen perched like a hobgoblin on the little shelves where the dead used to stow away for ages. I was desperately tired after a few hours of it, and begged the professor to return. But he was bent on exploring certain places, and would not desist. We had but one guide, so I was forced to stay. But Jamal, my man, seeing how weary I was, proposed to us to rest in one of the larger passages, while we went to procure another guide for Niles. We consented and assuring us that we were perfectly safe if we did not quit the spot, Jamal left us, promising to return speedily. The professor sat down to take notes of his research, and stretching myself on the soft sand, I fell asleep. I was roused by that indescribable thrill which instinctively warns us of danger, and springing up, 
I found myself alone. One torch burned faintly where Jamal had struck it, but Niles and the other light were gone. A dreadful sense of loneliness oppressed me for a moment, and then I collected myself and looked well about me. A bit of paper was pinned to my hat, which lay near me, and on it in the professor's writing were these words. I've gone back a little to refresh my memory on a certain point. Don't follow me till Jamal comes. I can find my way back to you, for I have a clue. Sleep well and dream gloriously of pharaohs. I laughed at first over the old enthusiast, then felt anxious, then restless, and finally resolved to follow him, for I discovered a strong cord fastening to a fallen stone and knew that this was the clue he spoke of. Leaving a line for Jamal, I took my torch and retraced my steps, following the cord along the winding ways. I often shouted, but received no reply and pressed on, hoping at each turn to see the old man poring over some relic of antiquity. Suddenly, the cord ended, and lowering my torch, I saw the footsteps had gone on. Ah, rash fellow, he'll lose himself to certainty, I thought, really alarmed now. As I paused, a faint call reached me, and I answered it waited, shouted again, and a still fainter echo replied. Niles was evidently going on, misled by the reverberations of the low passages. No time was to be lost, and forgetting myself, I stuck my torch in the hand to guide me back to the clue and ran down the straight path before me, whooping like a madman as I went. I did not mean to lose sight of the light, but in my eagerness to find Niles, I turned from the main passage and, guided by his voice, hastened on. His torch soon gladdened my eyes, and the clutch of his trembling hands told me what agony he had suffered. Let us get out of this horrible place at once, he said, wiping the great drops from his forehead. Come, we're not far from the clue. I can reach it, and then we are safe. But as I spoke, a chill passed over me, for a perfect labyrinth of narrow paths lay before us. Trying to guide myself by such landmarks as I had observed in my hasty passage, I followed the tracks in the sand till I fancied we must be near my light. No glimmer appeared, however, and kneeling down to examine the footprints nearer, I discovered, to my dismay, that I had been following the wrong ones, for among those marked by a deep boot heel were prints of bare feet. We'd had no guide there, and Jamal wore sandals. Rising as I confronted Niles with the one despairing word, lost, as I pointed from the treacherous sand to the fast-waning light, I thought the old man would be overwhelmed, but, to my surprise, he grew quite calm and steady, thought a moment, then went on, saying quietly, Other men have passed here before us. Let us follow their steps, for, if I do not greatly err, they lead toward great passages where one's way is easily found. On we went, bravely, till a misstep threw the professor violently to the ground with a broken leg and nearly extinguished the torch. It was a horrible predicament, 
and I gave up all hope as I sat beside the poor fellow, who lay exhausted with fatigue, remorse, and pain, for I would not leave him. Paul, he said suddenly, if you will not go on, there is one more effort we can make. I remember hearing that a party lost as we are saved themselves by building a fire. The smoke penetrated further than the sound or light, and the guide's quick wit understood the unusual mist. He followed it and rescued the party. Make a fire, and trust to Jamal. A fire without wood, I began, and he pointed to a shelf behind me, which had escaped me in the gloom, and on it I saw a slender mummy case. I understood him. For these dry cases, which lie about in hundreds and are freely used as firewood, reaching up, I pulled it down, believing it to be empty. But as it fell, it burst open and rolled out a mummy. Accustomed as I was to such sights, it startled me a little, for danger had unstrung my nerves. Laying the little brown chrysalis aside, I smashed the case lit the pile with my torch, and soon a light cloud of smoke drifted down the three passages which diverged from the cell-like place where we had paused. While busied with the fires, Niles, forgetful of pain and peril, had dragged the mummy nearer and was examining it with the interest of a man whose ruling passion was strong, even in death. Come and help me unroll this. I have always longed to be the first to see and secure the curious treasures away among the folds of these uncanny winding sheets. This is a woman, and we may find something rare and precious here, he said, beginning to unfold the outer coverings, from which a strange, aromatic odor came. Reluctantly I obeyed, for to me there was something sacred in the bones of this unknown woman. But to beguile the time and amuse the poor fellow, I lent a hand, wondering as I worked if this dark, ugly thing had ever been a lovely, soft-eyed Egyptian girl. From the fibrous folds of the wrappings dropped precious gums and spices, which half-intoxicated us with their potent breath, antique coins, and a curious jewel or two, which Niles eagerly examined. All the bandages but one were cut off at last, and a small head laid bare, round which still hung great plates of what had been luxuriant hair. The shriveled hands were folded on the breast, and clasped in them lay that gold box. (gasps) cried Evelyn, dropping it from her rosy palm with a shudder. Nay, don't reject the poor little mummy's treasure. I never have quite forgiven myself for stealing it or for burning her, said Forsyth, panting rapidly as if the recollection of that experience lit energy into his hand. Burning her? Oh, Paul, what do you mean? asked the girl, sitting up with a face full of excitement. I'll tell you. While busied with Madame Le Mamie, our fire had burned low, for the dry case went like tinder. A faint, far-off sound made our hearts leap, and Niles cried out, Pile on the wood! Jamal is tracking us! Don't let the smoke fail now, or we are lost! There is no more wood. The case was very small, and all is gone, I answered, 
tearing off such my garments as would burn readily and piling them upon the embers. Niles did the same, but the light fabrics were quickly consumed and made no smoke. Burn that, commanded the professor, pointing to the mummy. I hesitated. Again came the faint echo of a horn. Life was dear to me. A few dry bones might save us, and I obeyed him in silence. A dull blaze sprung up, and a heavy smoke rose from the burning mummy, rolling in volumes through low passages and threatening to suffocate us with its fragrant mist. My brain grew dizzy. The light danced before my eyes. Strange phantoms seemed to people the air and in the act of asking Niles while he gasped and looked so pale. I lost consciousness. Evelyn drew a long breath and put away the scented toys from her lap as if their odor oppressed her. Forsythe's swarthy face was all aglow with the excitement of his story and his black eyes glittered as he added with a quick laugh. That's all. Jamal found us and got us out, and we both forswore pyramids for the rest of our days. But the box, how came you to keep it? asked Evelyn, eyeing it askance as it lay gleaming in a streak of sunshine. Oh, I brought it away as a souvenir, and Niles kept the other trinkets. But you said harm was foretold to the possessor of those scarlet seeds persisted the girl, whose fancy was excited by the tale, and who fancied all was not told. Among his spoils, Niles found a bit of parchment, which he deciphered, and his inscription said that the mummy we had so ungallantly burned was that of a famous sorceress who bequeathed her curse to whoever should disturb her rest. Of course, I don't believe that curse has anything to do with it, but it's a fact that Niles never prospered from that day. He says it's because he has never recovered from the fall and fright, and I dare say it is so. But I sometimes wonder if I am to share the curse, for I have a vein of superstition in me, and that poor little mummy haunts my dreams still. A long silence followed these words. Paul painted mechanically, and Evelyn lay regarding him with a thoughtful face. But gloomy fancies were as foreign to her nature as shadows are to noonday. And presently she laughed a cheery laugh, saying as she took up the box again, Why don't you plant them and see what wondrous flower they will bear? I doubt if they would bear anything after lying in a mummy's hands for centuries, replied Forsyth gravely. Let me plant them and try. You know wheat has sprouted and grown that was taken from a mummy's coffin. Why should not these pretty seeds? I should so like to watch them grow. May I, Paul? No, I'd rather leave that experiment untried. I have a queer feeling about the matter and don't want to meddle myself or let anyone I love meddle with these seeds. They may be some horrible poison. Or possess some evil power, for the sorceress evidently valued them, since she clutched them fast, even in her tomb. <laughs> now you are foolishly superstitious, and I laugh at you. Be generous. Give me one seed, just to learn if it will grow. See, I'll pay for it, said Evelyn, who now stood beside him dropped a kiss on his forehead as she made her request with the most engaging air. 
but Forsyth would not yield. He smiled and returned the embrace with lover-like warmth, then flung the seeds into the fire and gave her back the golden box, saying tenderly, My darling, I'll fill it with diamonds or bonbons, if you please, but I will not let you play with that witch's spell. You've enough of your own, so forget the pretty seeds and see what a light of the harem I've made of you. Evelyn frowned and smiled. Presently, the lovers were out in the spring sunshine, reveling in their own happy hopes, untroubled by one foreboding fear. I have a little surprise for you, love, said Forsyth, as he greeted his cousin three months later on the morning of his wedding day. And I have one for you, she answered, smiling faintly. How pale you are and how thin you grow. All this bridal bustle is too much for you, Evelyn, he said with a fond anxiety as he watched the strange pallor of her face and pressed the wasted little hand in his. I'm so tired, she said, and leaned her head wearily on her lover's breast. Neither sleep nor food nor air gives me strength and a curious mist seems to cloud my mind at times. Mamma says it's the heat, but I shiver even in the sun, while at night I burn with fever. Paul, dear, I'm glad you are going to take me away to lead a quiet, happy life with you, but I'm afraid it will be a short one. My fanciful little wife, you are tired and nervous with all this worry, but a few weeks of rest in the country will give us back our blooming eve again. Have you no curiosity to learn my surprise? he asked to change her thoughts. The vacant look stealing over the girl's face gave place to one of interest, but as she listened, it seemed to require an effort to fix her mind on her lover's words. You remember the day we rummaged in the old cabinet? Yes. A smile touched her lips for a moment. And how you wanted to plant those queer red seeds I stole from the mummy? I remember. And her eyes kindled with sudden fire. Well, I tossed them into the fire, as I thought, and gave you the box. But when I went back to cover up my picture and found one of those seeds on the rug, a sudden fancy to gratify your whim led me to send it to Niles and ask him to plant and report on its progress. Today, I hear from him for the first time. He reports that the seed has grown marvelously, has budded, and that he intends to take the first, if it blooms in time, to a meeting of famous scientific men, after which he will send it me its true name and the plant itself. From his description, it must be very curious, and I'm impatient to see it. You need not wait. I can show you the flower in its bloom. And Evelyn beckoned with the Michon's smile so long, a stranger to her lips. Much amazed, Forsyth followed her to her own little boudoir, and there, standing in the sunshine, was the unknown plant. Almost rank in their luxuriousness were the vivid green leaves on the slender purple stems, and rising from the mist, one ghostly white flower, shaped like the head of a hooded snake, with scarlet stamens like forked tongues, and on the petals glittered spots like dew. 
A strange, uncanny flower. Has it any odor? asked Forsyth, bending to examine it and forgetting in his interest to ask how it came there. None, and that disappoints me. I'm so fond of perfumes, answered the girl, caressing the green leaves which trembled at her touch, while the purple stems deepened their tint. Now tell me about it, said Forsyth, standing silent for several minutes. I had been before you and secured one of the seeds, for two fell on the rug. I planted it under a glass in the richest soil I could find, watered it faithfully, and was amazed at the rapidity with which it grew when once it appeared above the earth. I told no one, for I meant to surprise you with it. But this bud has been so long in blooming, I've had to wait. It is a good omen that it blossoms today, and as it's nearly white, I mean to wear it, for I've learned to love it, having been my pet for so long. I would not wear it, for in spite of its innocent color, it is an evil-looking plant, with its adder tongue and unnatural dew. Wait till Niles tells us what it is, then pet it is, if it's harmless. Perhaps my sorceress cherished it for some symbolic beauty. Those old Egyptians were full of fancies. It was very sly of you to turn the tables on me in this way, but I will forgive you, since in a few hours I shall chain this mysterious hand forever. How cold it is! Come out into the garden and get some warmth and color for tonight, my love. But when night came, no one could reproach the girl with her pallor, for she glowed like a pomegranate flower. Her eyes were full of fire, her lips scarlet, and all her old vivacity seemed to have returned. A more brilliant bride never blushed under a misty veil, and when her lover saw her, he was absolutely startled by the almost unearthly beauty which transformed the pale, languid creature of the morning into this radiant woman. They were married, and if love, many blessings, and all gifts lavishly showered upon them could make them happy, then this young pair were truly blessed. But even in the rapture of the moment that made her his, Forsyth observed how icy cold was the little hand he held, how feverish the deep color on the soft cheek he kissed, and what a strange fire burned in the tender eyes that looked so wistfully at him. Blithe and beautiful as a spirit, the smiling bride played her part in all the festivities that long evening. And when at last life and color began to fade, the loving eyes that watched her thought it was the natural weariness of the hour. As the last guest departed, Forsyth was met by a servant who gave him a letter marked Haste. Tearing it open, he read the lines from a friend of the professor's. Dear Sir, Poor Niles died suddenly two days ago, while at the scientific club, and his last words were, Tell Paul Forsyth to beware of the mummy's curse, for this fatal flower has killed me. The circumstances of his death were so peculiar that I add them as a sequel to this message. For several months, as he told us, he had been watching an unknown plant, and that evening he brought us the flower to examine. Other matters of interest absorbed us till a late hour and the plant was forgotten. The professor wore it in his buttonhole, a strange, white, serpent-headed blossom, 
with pale glittering spots which slowly changed to a glittering scarlet till the leaves looked as if they were sprinkled with blood. It was observed that instead of the pallor and feebleness which had recently overcome him, that the professor was unusually animated and seemed in an almost unnatural state of high spirits. Near the close of the meeting, in the midst of a lively discussion, he suddenly dropped, as if smitten with apoplexy. He was conveyed home insensible, and after one lucid interval in which he gave me the message I have recorded above, he died in great agony, raving of mummies, pyramids, serpents, and some fatal curse which had fallen upon him. After his death, Livid scarlet spots like those on the flower appeared upon his skin, and he shriveled like a withered leaf. At my desire, the mysterious plant was examined and pronounced by the best authorities of one of the most deadly poisons known to the Egyptian sorceresses. The plant slowly absorbs the vitality of whoever cultivates it, and the blossom, worn for two or three hours, produces either madness or death. Down dropped the paper from Forsyth's hand. He read no further, but hurried back into the room where he'd left his young wife. As if worn out with fatigue, she'd thrown herself upon a couch and lay there motionless, her face half hidden by the light folds of the veil which had blown over it. Evelyn, my dearest, wake up and answer me. Do you wear the strange flower today? whispered Forsyth, putting the misty screen away. There was no need for her to answer, for there, gleaming spectrally upon her bosom, was the evil blossom, its white petals spotted now with flecks of scarlet, vivid as drops of newly spilt blood. But the unhappy bridegroom scarcely saw it, for the face above it appalled him by its utter vacancy. Drawn and pallid, as if with some Wasting malady, the young face so lovely an hour ago lay before him, aged and blighted by the baleful influence of the plant which had drunk up her life. No recognition in the eyes, no word upon the lips, no motion of the hand, only the faint breath, the fluttering pulse, and wide-opened eyes betrayed that she was alive. Alas for the young wife! The superstitious fear at which she had smiled had proved true. The curse had bided its time for ages, was fulfilled at last, and her own hand wrecked her happiness forever. Death and life was her doom, and for years Forsyth secluded himself to tend with pathetic devotion the pale ghost, who never, by word or look, could thank him for the love that outlived even such a fate as this. Thank you for listening to Marley's Ghosts with me, your ghostess, Deborah Marley. If you would like to connect with me, you can reach me on Instagram, Twitter, or send me an email at marleysghostspodcast at gmail.com. You can also go to my website at marleysghostspodcast.com. Until next time, my darlings, sleep well.